if you're willing to put in that work and willing to put yourself in some of those uncomfortable situations to build some resilience, then you're going to be better for it. And your family's going to be better for it. Your loved ones, those around you, everybody around you is going to be better for it. Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Handbook, your guide to life, leadership, and health. And I'm your host, Gene Reed. The quote you just heard, that is Jeff McGuire. He's our guest on today's episode, episode number three. He's a police sergeant. He's got a couple other hobbies that we go into. Jeff and I had fun with this one. We talked about resiliency and being a police sergeant, a couple other topics. He makes pens. He's a librarian. We'll get into all that. But we had fun with this. We've known each other for a few years. We joked around a bit. But I think in the end, we got our message across and we really hit some great points. So stay tuned. And as always, if you learn something, share something. It's recording. Don't say anything crazy. Let's get that thing where you want it. I really want to say something crazy now. Please don't. And don't whisper. It's creepy. All right, let's start this thing. Great. So... Each guest that I've been having on, I'm trying to summarize them. You know, I do my little intro thing, but then I, when we start the conversation, I try and summarize. So I was on my run this morning, this cold January breezy morning, and I thought of three things that I think best summarize you. Let me know if I'm wrong. Or right. I might be spot on with this. Might be. And I'm leaving out that you're a father, you're a husband, all that, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the most important things. But Police sergeant. That is correct. Librarian and master pen maker. Mm. Okay, so the first the first one is one hundred percent accurate. I don't know how you argue with that. Yeah, really. contractually that's true. Contractually that's true. It's my what my pay stub says every week, where it says like pay rate and whatnot. I've got like that fancy piece of paper at home that I'm supposed to get framed and put on the wall that says congratulations on your promotion to sergeant. Blah blah blah. May. 8th, 2018. Librarian. It's interesting. Something I kind of fell into. You're a librarian. You have a library. Sort of. And you run a library that has books in it. You're a librarian. And you're a master pen maker. Come on. I'm not a master pen maker, too. And that's something that, like, like, I walked in here, I was talking to Yard for for a second, I mentioned the fact that my wife is always getting on me when I walked out of the house and ripped jeans and like Yeah, you look ridiculous right now. Okay. Well, you know what? Like I didn't pay four hundred dollars for these ripped jeans. I paid twenty dollars and put the holes in them myself. Um but so my wife gets on me about my ripped jeans. She also kinda like tongue in cheek calls herself like the pen maker's wife. Like there's some fairy tale like the shoemaker's wife or something like that. Yeah. She calls herself the pen maker's wife, kind of like tongue in cheek and like Again, that's something like kind of like the library I fell into. Like, I didn't wake up one day and be like, I really want to make a lot of pens. Yeah. No, I didn't. I just kind of fell into it, sort of. Let's do this. You gave our squad a training yesterday. I did. You and a couple other people. And I haven't figured out what I'm doing about saying people's names on here yet. Okay. I guess I'll figure that out as time goes on. Give people fake names. So the training you gave was this resiliency training. Yes. Right, and if you listen to, if anybody listening to this has listened to episode one, episode two, that's kind of obviously the the direction we're going with this entire show is stress management, resiliency. 
So how do you think that training went yesterday? That's your third time doing it, right? So third time doing it. Um, how it went. In, in my opinion, it went all right. Like it's uh, obviously we're operating in the COVID world right now where, you know, having trying to do a training or in-person lecture or anything like that is pretty much impossible. So we did it through Zoom, which is not ideal, but it's better than not doing it at all, I think. I guess I'll back up a little bit. We did that training because I'm on the department's wellness committee, which is something I volunteered for like 18 months ago or so when they first put it together. And I volunteered for it because I have an educational background in economics. Got my degree in economics and thought that uh, participating in the wellness committee and uh, contributing in the area of financial wellness is something that I could I could help people with. I could uh, make a contribution to, and so that's why I volunteered to be on the wellness committee. Kind of fell into some of the resiliency, mental health aspects of it as well, and kind of got voluntold into going to this train the trainer thing back in the spring of 2020. Um, is when I got signed up for this train the trainer thing that the actual course was at the end of October. So me and a couple other people from the department went to this resiliency course. Yeah, who gave, who was that? Was that so, state police? So I guess locally the person who was kind of the driving force behind it was a, there's a, a captain from the state police who's an instructor in this course. The curriculum was put together and put out by the FBI National Academy. I'll say her name. It's Captain Griffin. Yes. Because I've worked I've been in contact with her. Yes. She has her PhD. She's been a big help with me just in that navigating the world of getting your PhD and all, but mm-hmm. good. So, yeah. So Captain Griffin was the, the main local instructor and they had a bunch of other instructors that are in law enforcement or retired law enforcement from around the country that they brought in to, to teach this course. We go through this course. It was two and a half days or so that uh, we had it. And I, you know, to be perfectly frank, I went into the beginning of it thinking like, like a lot of other people going to extra trainings when they're in patrol, like, hey, this is a couple of days off the street. So they don't have to put on the uniform. I can wear business clothes to work and be on a straight day work schedule. It's great. It's like a little reprieve that I think everybody can kind of identify with. At the end of that two and a half days, however, I was like, this is some really great stuff. And really want to push this out to everybody. Yeah. What's the whole what's the whole point behind it? It's it's resi- it's building resiliency, right? I think that that's the big that's the thing that I took away from your training yesterday was and I've known this before but you know resiliency is something that can be taught and learned and you can build upon yes. resiliency. I'm just going to go on a, a quick soapbox about resiliency. Go for it. I, I expected you to. Yeah. Cuz we've talked about this quite a bit before. So resiliency the the actual I call it the clinical term but there was a individual last name Kobasa in 1979 who coined the term hardiness. Same thing as resiliency. But hardiness, people who are hardy, it's character trait, embrace. There's three basically um, characteristics that are traits that they embrace, and it's commitment, challenge, and something else. I can't remember. It'll come to me. But basically, the, the individuals who are hardy embrace change they take control for the things that happen in their lives and they just handle stressful stressful situations at a exponentially greater rate than individuals who are not 
basically it's the whole victim's mentality thing. You know, people want to blame everybody else for their problems. And so that's how resiliency came in. And that's what you guys were talking about. You know, some things that you can do to build upon that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I'll just say this, the zoom setting for that kind of training is not ideal. Nope. Because that's the stuff you're talking about. Resiliency, goal setting, seeking difficult things and that, that's some pretty impactful stuff mm-hmm. and i think it's very difficult i think you did, i think you guys did a, a good job with it for zoom yeah you and, know and you know i was i was talking to president yard about it just a couple minutes ago like trying to figure out how we're going to roll out the rest of it because the curriculum is meant to be very interactive like there were some student activities that we kind of some of them i just straight up cut out when we did the training the other day yeah um because of it being on Zoom, it was just, also, it was right? just not going to work. Technical difficulties. Some yes. of the videos didn't work. Yes. All right. So that was the third time we did the training yesterday. And it was the first time we had a problem with our audio. Like the first two times the audio worked. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it decided not to work. So I'm going to send out a, a, a link to people for the YouTube video for the, the, the longer one that didn't work about the, the letter writing and things like that. Because that was a really interesting exercise. And like when we went to train the trainer, we were forced to do it. And it was... It was really good, really impactful. And I'll say this, when, when I went to the train the trainer for this resiliency training, there's a lot of like these modules they start because it's, it's like 12 different modules of different, uh, different sections, if you will. And several of them, when they introduced it and said, this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to have you do, I, th- I was sitting there thinking, this is stupid. I don't want to do that. Well, that's exactly what I thought yesterday. When you guys were telling me yeah. to write a letter to somebody who yeah. was impactful on me, I was like, Nobody's going to do this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know what? Like I, I, I sat there for a couple of minutes and they had, like had us write the letter in class. And I sat there thinking, this is silly. This is so silly. Like who the heck, who? And, and, and one of the, um, I don't think we said this yesterday, but one of the stipulations on it was, it was the person who's been most impactful to you that's still living. So like, let's say it's a parent or a grandparent or somebody who's, who's passed away. They wanted you to pick the person who's still living so that once you've written the letter, you can then go and call this person and read it to them and tell them about it. So I sat there in class after I was told to do this and wrote the letter to my wife. And, uh, you know, we've been married 11 plus years. And I'll say this, like when I got married, I had no idea what that guy was doing. And we went through some rough patches in our marriage and like have come through it and it's been greater because of it. And, Actually, to be, you know, to really be honest and throw myself out there, I wrote a letter to her along those lines on our 10th anniversary. So we've been married 11 plus years. The summer of 19 was when we had our 10th anniversary. We got to go away for a couple of days. And I wrote a letter to her because I always have trouble trying to find like a gift. When it's time to give a gift to your spouse, like she and I have combined finances. So like when I buy something for her, it's like, I'm buying it with her own money, and she does the same thing for me. It seems kind of like silly to buy things. Yeah, I'm the worst gift giver. It's not that I don't care, honestly. It's just I've just never been very good at it. Right, and like at what at what point, like especially when you're married to somebody, at what point, like, are you really giving like meaningful gifts? And so, like, one of the things between me and my wife is like, we'd rather do things or go places and whatnot. And so, with COVID this year trying to do things has been like next to impossible. And so I think we both kind of bombed our Christmas gifts to each other this past uh, Christmas. You know? right. But uh, 
anyway, so on our 10th anniversary, we were driving to the Outer Banks. I wrote her a letter, um, the contents of which I will not divulge in public. But Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so I had done it before, and I don't know why the second time I was like, all right, well, this is stupid. But then I, I wrote this letter to her. It was like two paragraphs, maybe three. And I went home and I wrote it to her that night. And it was just, it was really impactful, like about how she's been the most impactful person to me in my life over the last, you know, 11 years of marriage and, you know, beyond that in dating and engagement and whatnot. But just the way that I've been able to grow as a person, as a husband, as a father through through her. And um, yeah, so it was, it was a great exercise. What's the point of the exercise? I th- so the, the point of the exercise is to help people generate gratitude. Uh, we kind of talked yesterday about how like like cultivating gratitude, and that's one of the things that uh, the whole idea behind cultivating it. I think we we probably should have pushed a little bit more about how it's something you like you have to work at. It's like I use the example. I have like a little vegetable garden in my backyard, where like every spring I get all excited. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna put in this and that and this other thing, and I I get it all great at the beginning of the year, and then I never really don't keep up with the weeds. And, you know, when, when I go to work for the four days of our patrol shift, I don't go out there and I harvest stuff when I'm on the days when I'm working. And so stuff will rot on the vine. I always plant too many tomatoes, so we can't ever use all the tomatoes we plant. I do a bad job cultivating it because it's not just about planting the seeds, planting the plants and letting them grow from there. Like you've got to continue to work at it. You've got to continue to um, improve the environment there, cultivating it. To, to have a successful garden, have a successful harvest. And so if you're cultivating this gratitude, this attitude of gratitude, and I hate saying it like that because it sounds so chintzy, but if you're going to cultivate gratitude, like you got to learn what you are doing. So like if you listen to the training that we did or watched it, like that's like a start, like that's planting the seed, that's putting the plant in the ground, but like you've got to water it, you've got to trim back the weeds, you've got to, you know, if stake it up and tie it to a tomato cage and let it let it grow and bloom and blossom and really yeah, J- flourish. Jen Boylo and I talked about this because at some point in our episode, I asked her what she does on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. she's, for lack of a better term, the master of stress management, meditation, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And that was the number one thing she said. She immediately said she picks several things that she's grateful for mm-hmm. that day. Because I think it's easy, right? It's easy to get lost in the sauce and Kind of forget, right? And so, when we uh, when we did this training, they had us do it like every day. Like some, just think about the last twenty four hours. What are three things you are grateful for in the last twenty four hours? And they gave us all post notes, and we would share them with a partner, and we could put them on the wall. And we did it every day in the training because that was like one of the first modules in the training. Like the idea is behind it is that like you're you know if you're just starting to do this, you're just being introduced to the concept. Like do it every day to make it a habit, and then. Once you've made it a habit, maybe don't do it every day because you don't want it to be routine because then it can kind of lose its meaning. And so I, I share that story in the training about how, you know, this is one of the techniques from the training that I've used a lot, probably the one I use the second most. You know, towards the end of 2020, you know, our squad, we work on the same shift. And, you know, I knew going into the holiday season, we were going to work day work on Christmas and we were going to work night work on New Year's, which is kind of like, the crappiest draw, but you know what happens in law enforcement sometimes. You just got to suck it up and deal with it. And you're also getting paid overtime. And you're also getting paid overtime. You're getting paid holiday pay, which is nice. But at the same time, you're you know you're missing Christmas morning. You're out there on New Year's Eve, which 
you know, that was a crazy time. I know you talked a little bit about it in your, that was. In your episode and, um, over on the West side, I got a little crazy at one point too. No, it so, didn't stop. West side doesn't get crazy. You don't even know where the West side is. Um, so anyway, going into holiday season, we were off for Thanksgiving and I had, you know, we had some plans to see some family. I was a little bit limited with COVID and whatnot, but you know, I was really looking forward to that time at Thanksgiving of being the, you know, like that's the time to look forward to at the holiday season. That was a thing, the event that we were going to do that, that I was really looking forward to. And then the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, my wife got diagnosed with COVID. And so all that went out the window. We just, you know, we shut down Thanksgiving. Uh, we had Thanksgiving at, the, at home with the five of us, me, my wife, and my three kids. And that was it. And we were in our house for like 10 days. Like it. Stressful. Stressful. Awful. Yes. That was awful. And, and you know what? Like we didn't even have the sickness that bad. Like four out of the five of us tested positive minor symptoms at, at worst. And Did you get it? Yeah, I got it. Oh, I didn't know you got it. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't really have symptoms, but uh, but I got it until my kids got it. My wife was the only one who was actually like sick, but like nothing crazy compared to like obviously people are dying from this and going to the hospital. And, you know, we had a friend that had it just before we did and they never went to the hospital, but they were like really sick, like in bed, couldn't get out of bed sick anyway. Anyway, Thanksgiving basically gets canceled. And, um, you know, made me think of the, the episode of The Office where Michael tries to cancel Christmas. And, but somebody didn't manage it. You know, they tell me you can't cancel Christmas. Well, someone did cancel Thanksgiving for us. Thanksgiving was canceled. Stanley. Um, I was kind of like at the, you know, at the end of the holiday season, I was all just, just grumpy, like mad, because on top of all the other stuff that happened in 2020 that was just not good and, you know, there to get you down, the one thing I was looking forward to in the holiday season that I thought was going to be there was not. And yep. so, like, you know what David Goggins calls that? Poopy pants. Poopy pants. He does call that poopy pants. So, you know, after a couple of days of being grumpy, I sat down and I was, you know, just kind of reflecting. And I was like, you know what? Not everything over the past year has been terrible. And I, I kind of shared this story yesterday in the training. So I'll, I'm going to go over it again, just, you know, because you probably have listeners that weren't listening or watching to what I, what I did yesterday. But yeah. Uh, I sat down and I started to think of some things I was grateful for over 2020. So one of them was this road trip that we took from our house in Delaware to Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin. It was like 14 hours in the car. It was something my wife and some of her friends had planned. One of them had a lake house out there. I said, hey, come out and visit. Just get out here and we got a free place to stay. We can boat and fish and water ski and all kinds of stuff. Something I would literally never do. Yeah, I, I didn't think I would do it. And I was like, Okay, I, I, 14 hours in the car with the family and the kids sounds awful, but you know my wife has been talking about doing this for a couple of years because her, her friend that used to live out here moved back home to Wisconsin. And, you know they wanted to take this vacation. I was like, all right, we'll do it. And it Wait, was, what do you guys listen to? Did you put music on? Oh gosh, there was. Um, well, so I drove. I did all of the driving, and like I would just put on Jocko podcast for 14 hours. Yeah, no. I, I listened to a lot of kids' movies because, like, we've got a minivan and there's, like, the screen that's right behind my head and I can obviously hear the audio. Right. So I listened to a lot of kids' movies. That was interesting. Occasionally from time to time I'd have my headphones in just doing my own thing. That was mostly, like, when we were on the, on the overnight on the way back because we did it in, like, two days on the way out but then one straight shot on the way back and that was that was a long ride. Anyway, the time out there was, like, way better than I thought it would be. And the ride, it was rough at times, but it was still easier and better than I thought it would be too. 
And so I was thankful for that. Like came coming back from that, and I was like, wow, visiting Wisconsin way better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So that was one. Uh, second one was I kind of picked up deer hunting as a hobby a few years ago. Just like something I kind of got interested in doing when I was probably 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there. I was like, yeah, I kind of like to learn how to hunt. And you do bow hunting, right? I did. Well, yes. So um, so I have a crossbow, which th- that's a whole other tangent we can go on about crossbows versus compound bows. But I have a crossbow. I'm looking to get a compound bow at some point soon. But anyway, archery hunting as opposed to firearms hunting, you have to be a whole lot closer to your prey uh, just because you're – the, the lethal ranger weapon is not as good. So going into this season, you know, I had this goal of getting getting a deer for the first time with archery. And October the 8th, managed to kill a doe and, and harvest this doe with my crossbow and was really excited about that. Really, you know, like, hey, this is great. You know, I'm, I've, I've had these goals in terms of my hunting hobby that I wanted to accomplish and get to. And I've got some other goals further ones down the line that I want to get to. And this was like a, you know, like a sub goal towards some of them. And kind of like I view it as like a big sub goal because if I could, if I could do this, if I could accomplish this, then it really gets me towards some of those bigger goals that I have. And so I was really excited about that. And I was like, hey, this is something else that happened in 2020 that I'm really thankful for that I was able to do. And, you know, it was really great. And it was a really like high point of the year. And there's other high points of the year too, besides these three things I'm going to share. But that was, that was number two. And then number three was we had a, uh, an inner squad softball game. So in our department, we've got four different patrol squads that, Two that work together, you know, flip flop in between nights and days. You're always working on the same days as each other. And our squad had a softball game against the squad that you know we always work opposite of back in October, and it was just a, a great time getting out there and being competitive with one another. And yeah, and find out who's not athletic and just yeah, and who is and who isn't. Sucks at sports. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was a fun time. That was a, that actually that was, was a that lot was a, of fun. It was a lot of fun. And I am the I had similar mentality to you going to Wisconsin where I was, you know, I'm going to show up just because I'm a supervisor on the squad now and it's camaraderie and it's a team. I had so much fun. Yeah. I really did. Granted, I played baseball growing up, so it wasn't uncomfortable for me just being around everybody. We played three games, I think. Yeah. Like it got to the point where I was just like, all right, I'm done. Yeah. You know, like like, like all afternoon into the, you know, into the evening and you know, you, you, you find, it's funny because like you, you mentioned talk about who's unathletic. Like, I'm not like completely uncoordinated, but I'm not super athletic either. And so, like, I played like church. So, post high school, I played like some church league softball, but it's been a few years since you know, I'd put the cleats on and gotten the glove out. And going into that, I'm like, I'm probably going to embarrass myself at the plate, but I really like playing defense. Like, I've always like, I've always liked playing defense. Where did you, I forget, where were you? So, I mostly played in the outfield because I have this. That makes sense. I'm not going to call it a handicap, but I'm left handed. So, you know, couple positions in the infield are just straight up out for me. So I love love going after fly balls in the outfield, going after line drives in the outfield, and just, oh, it's coming towards me. I'm going to sprint to it and see if I can cut it off and, you know, make that catch before it hits the ground or whatever. Yep. Um, love playing love playing the outfield in, in softball. So um, that was a lot of fun, getting to sprint around the outfield and, you know. We also had a huge advantage. I mean, I played high school baseball. I was average player. I played right. third base. And then our shortstop and second baseman both played in college. Yeah, we were turning so, double plays and stuff. Yes, it's great. Yeah, and then I think we had a, we had one guy in the outfield too that played in college too. Yes, we had some some advantages there and whatnot. But anyway, it was a great time, way better than I even thought it was going to be. And you know, because we had like a you know cookout and people 
brought potluck stuff afterwards and whatnot and just people hanging out. And it was another event that was like way better than I, like Wisconsin was way better than I thought it was going to be. And it was something else I was grateful for. And so like taking the time to reflect back and, you know, kind of went on this, this soapbox a little bit for a long time, but like thinking back on those three things, like there was other things to be thankful for in 2020 and whatnot, but those three things were three big ones. And so going through that year that, you know, everybody went through, you know, what we went through in 2020, but me reflecting on it at the end of the year and, you know, sitting there in my poopy pants, as David Goggins would call it, as I was thinking about those other things, the things I had to be grateful for, it helped me take off those poopy pants and be like, you know what? It's not all that bad. Yeah. Let's, you know, buck up. 2020 is about to start. Let's go get after it in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. When I wake up in the morning, that's one of the first things. Like, hey, I woke up. Yeah. All right. Let's rock and roll. And the other thing you guys were talking about, so, you know, nailing down what you're grateful for, that's awesome. And then you guys started getting into goal setting. I was listening to something when I was coming in to our fancy studio here today. <laughs> Did you guys talk about, like, having a vision or did you just talk about? I, mean, I think you guys should. Vision. So, when we talk about goal setting, I think it's very important to at least to have a vision prior to setting your goal, so that you have some semblance of like, okay, what's the overarching goal here? Like overall, what direction am I going? Am I going northeast, southwest, northeast? Where, where am I going here? And then once you figure that out, then setting some manageable goals. Yes, yeah, so I, I don't know if you guys talked about that or we not. We didn't call it we didn't call it vision, but we talked about like determining your values. Okay. Like what are the things that you know, what are the things most important to you? What do you want to be known by? Um and then how how those values are like your compass and the goals are like the path you're taking, you know, to to go in that direction. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So so, so it's slightly different, but but yes, like you can't just set goals here and there and see what three you can throw against the wall and what's gonna stick, but yeah, there was, you know, a part before that where, you know, we talk about values and the things you want to be known by and how the goals you set should be reflections of those values and whatnot. Now, did you read the book, The 10X Rule? No. It's by a guy named Grant Cardone. I uh, know Grant. I've, I've, Salesman. I'm familiar, yeah, familiar with Grant Cardone through his social media and whatnot. Yep, motivational speaker the yes. whole night. So that that book, The 10X Rule, I actually added it to your library. It's a, I think somebody just signed it out. I must not be a very good librarian if I didn't know it was yeah. in there. Well, you don't have the Dewey Decimal System, so how could you possibly know what books are in there? But I come up with my own decimal system. Grant Cardone, I read his book. I don't remember when I read it, but his whole thing is if you set goals, mm -hmm. the problem is we all live in this little bubble, and we don't take the time to expand our minds in the sense of we set a goal, you know, what kind of relationship you want to have with your spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, how much money you want to make a year, mm -hmm. what kind of shape you want to be in. His thing is, let's just take money because that's something everybody, and money is not everything, but money definitely allows you to do certain things and take certain stressors, stressors off yourself. Steve Harvey actually has a quote, you know, Steve Harvey mm -hmm. is, he's a great motivational speaker, by the way, and host of the Family Feud, but he says, the only thing that money does is turn emergencies into minor inconveniences. So when your air conditioning unit breaks, your hot water heater breaks, mm -hmm. if you have ten thousand hours sitting around and that's just nothing to you, then it's that's a minor inconvenience. Whereas if you're somebody who doesn't have that, well, that's kind of an issue now. However, if we take money, let's say you want to make 
$100,000 a year. Well, Grant Cardone's philosophy is, no, you want to make a million dollars a year because the steps that you're going to take to make a million dollars a year, you're at least going to hit 100000 And really, in the, in the goal of trying to go for a million, you're probably going to wind up making three, four times that original goal amount, right? So if you want to achieve a certain level of fitness or if you want to have a certain a semblance of a relationship with somebody, mm-hmm. just just be crazy for a minute, multiply by 10, and just really go for it because the steps that you will take to achieve that 10x of whatever you were going for, you're going to far surpass that original goal. So that whole book, I kind of just summarized it really, but it's just an exercise in reaching for the stars, if you will, but taking it seriously and right. and actually putting the, the steps in place. So like with this podcast, I mean, I didn't physically write this down. I'm a, I'm a big believer in writing goals down. You know, maybe my goal is to have 100,000 downloads in this, right, in the first year or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's an astronomical number. I'm probably not going to hit that. But if I take those steps to get to that, maybe I'll hit 40,000, you know. So that's a little soapbox there. But I know you guys were talking about goal setting yesterday. I just couldn't remember if you talked about the vision stuff, but I guess values. It's 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 similar. It's, similar. it's probably not the same thing exactly, but yeah. similar. And, and that you're not just setting goals willy-nilly right i had an idea when i was driving in this morning for and i'm not saying that this is nothing at you or anybody who put the training on because you guys are handcuffed with the amount of time you have and copt and all this stuff but i wish we would get away from the archaic you have to do four hours for this training right because copt says so right i'm just of the mindset where it's whatever time it takes. If I can communicate, it's all about the instructor relaying information to the student. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it takes an hour, it takes an hour. Mm-hmm. However, here's a, if I had my perfect world here, if I was doing a resiliency-based training, here's what I would do. I talked about this with Jen on the last episode. There's this mountain up in North Jersey called Mount Tammany. I would have everybody sign a volunteer, by the way, you would mm-hmm. volunteer for this training. Sign a waiver case you snap your ankle and not responsible for it but go do something physical right get a group of 15 20 people so they're engaged they're not sitting behind a computer screen droned out in their living room or whatever go do something physical go to this mountain at the halfway point to the summit stop and then and pick something you want to talk about 15 20 minutes right like setting goals and Hmm. and you know doing difficult things and then do that 15 20 minutes then go to the top you reach the summit you know, it's a great view. Take another 15, 20 minutes and talk about something else so that you're actually doing something physical. People are engaged. That's that's on my to-do list. You know, I know a lot of people are probably rolling their eyes right now, but I think there would be people who would want to no, like engage. It. Like, go do something difficult and throw education into the mix. People like are engaged. It. They're not just falling asleep. Something is difficult but achievable. Yes. Yeah. 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 We're not going to go run a marathon. No. Not that a marathon's not achievable, but there's training that has to go into it. Not yes. everybody can do that. So go somewhere that's, you know, you could Glasgow Park in Delaware. I don't care, you know. Yeah. But go run that hill a few times. Yeah. Just add a physical element to. And the first half of that training we had was all the medical stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. So, and I think they're planning on doing this, but do it during a range day. Let's go down the range. In between breaks, work on some scenarios, get moving, get the blood flowing, work on putting a tourniquet on under stress. And that, and that, I think we are moving that direction. Mm-hmm. 
put the restrictions on you have to do four hours of this. It's like, well, trust me, I can get this done in 90 minutes if you let me. Mm-hmm. That's a soapbox. That's all I'm saying. Police sergeant. You are a police sergeant. Yes. Why did you want to become a police sergeant? And don't give me the answer mm-hmm. that you gave during your oral board interview, because that's always a question. But really, like, why did you, unless that was truly why you wanted to do it, but like, what's the so, reasoning behind that journey? The reasoning behind that journey. I'll just, I'll, so I'll, there's a couple, but I'll, and I'll say this one first, because it's the one I can say the least about, but there's, there's a financial consideration behind it. And I think anybody who says they're not when they're seeking promotion, I don't think that that's necessarily entirely honest. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're going to take on a leadership position, there's a lot of, there's a lot, there's a lot burden put on you. And so you should be compensated for that when you, when you're taking on extra burdens. Um, cause I, I remember having a conversation with somebody when I was brand new and they were, you know, several, so they were several years ahead of me in their career and they were testing to, to be sergeant. And I remember thinking, and, and our and our contract was structured different differently at the time. And I remember thinking, like asking them, like, you really want that? Like the the pay raise to get promoted to sergeant was much less at the time. And they were like the acting supervisor on the street with us. And I remember thinking, like, like asking them, like, do you really want that? Like, is that really worth it? It sounds like a huge headache for not that much more compensation. And so, all that to say. Well, and our, and our contract has changed since then. You get a bigger pay raise when you're promoted to sergeant or lieutenant at our department. But all I have to say is I think that anybody who says that that's not a motivation, it's not being completely honest. There should be other – that shouldn't be the most important one. If that's the most important one, then you, you probably shouldn't be doing it, and you're probably going to be a bad sergeant. Yeah, you're, you're going to be awful be at yeah. the sergeant's position. Yes. So, yeah, there was certainly that that consideration there. But one of the biggest things that kind of motivated me was that – Coming into my career and the start of my career after I got out of the academy, I was very blessed and fortunate to have some really good leaders that I worked under at both the sergeant and the uh, lieutenant's level. And that helped me in my career a lot, like getting to places I wanted to be, like CIU and getting to be an uh, FTO. And so I almost felt like a, uh, a responsibility to return that favor to some other people. And quite honestly, like other times, you know, after I got away from, from some of those and, and I started to, you know, get a little bit further into my career and I could see some other leaders that weren't so good, not necessarily the ones that I work for directly, but just in general. And we're thinking, you know, I, you know, one of the things that cops do a lot is complain and complain about the bosses. And somebody told me once, you know, when I was just starting to get into the testing process, they were like, well, if you're not willing to test and promote and do the job yourself, there's only so much you can really complain about the bosses and the decisions they make. And I'm like, well, you know what? That's there's some there's some serious truth behind that. Yeah, I think actually having bad bosses or seeing bad bosses that's a blessing in disguise because it's so obvious mm-hmm. to you at the time. And yeah, you go through a stressful time because they don't make the work environment enjoyable. And I think that's an important part of being a supervisor. However, you get to see like, oh, well, I'll literally never do that, mm-hmm. what they're doing right now. So it yep. is kind of a blessing in disguise. It's all how you look at it, right? We yes. talked about that before, perception. Yes. You can bitch and moan about it and complain, 
or, or you, you just make a some, mental we, note. We can do something about it. Right. So I thought, you know what? All right, I'll start taking a test. And uh, again, like I've, I've led a very fortunate and blessed career because I did way better on the test than I ever thought I would and got promoted a lot sooner than I ever thought I would. Um, so it's been like two and a half years now since I got promoted. And I can remember the, you know, I was, I was in CIU when I got promoted and starting with the day I got promoted, I had like two weeks between being transferred out of CIU back to the street and actually getting promoted. I remember for those, those two weeks or so, every day I was around the building, I'd run into somebody at the rank of sergeant or above. And they said to me, Hey, enjoy it. Being a patrol sergeant is like best job in the department. And after two and a half years, like I look back on that and I say, yep, that's hundred percent accurate. Like, you know, cause I've had a couple different things that I've done. You know, I had the opportunity to be in two different assignments where I wore jeans and a t-shirt and had a beard and long hair and went to work like that every day. And I thought that was the greatest thing in the world at the time. And now like, no, like now being a sergeant, being a sergeant on patrol in particular is something I, I really enjoy doing. I like the freedom of being able to roam around and go where I want. Uh, for the last two years, I've been assigned to the patrol sector I grew up in, and I've got a lot of family and still, so, and I really like that. I had never worked that area before. You know, when I came on the department, I worked other areas, and then two years ago, I got transferred and moved in this area I've been working for the last two years. And I absolutely love working in the area that I grew up in. It's almost like a – there's somewhat of a sense of a feeling like giving back to – you know, the community I knew and grew up in. Do you remember when I got promoted? I asked yes. you. Yeah. So you asked me, you asked me a question when you got promoted. Literally, it was the day I got promoted. I think promoted. it was the day of, because I think you were like standing outside supply, like trying yep. to get the rest of your, your yeah, stuff. I was, I was trying to get my sergeant stripes. Yeah. So you asked me this question. You said, if there's one piece of advice you give to anybody, um, what would it be? And I don't remember what I said at the time, but I remember like not being prepared for that question yep. and giving a silly answer. Yeah. It was awful. Yep. And I was like, I'm never talking to that guy again. <laughs> <laughs> and little did you know, but then we had a conversation like a week or two later. Yep. And I'm trying to remember exactly how I phrased it. I had a different answer for that, for that question. And I'm trying to remember exactly how I phrased it. Do you remember how I phrased it? I don't know. Apparently it wasn't very impactful, but I do remember uh, seeing you down in supply. And that day was a blur. I remember I was actually giving a training for the mentor program that we were running. And then Two minutes before the TAPS meeting or investigators meeting, somebody was like, hey, you should probably go to this meeting. And I was yeah. like, okay. And that's that's usually like the nod where, you know, you're getting promoted or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's awful. I just brought this topic up, and I can't remember the advice that you gave me. It was something along the lines of... Uh, you, know what I'm, you know what I think it was? I think I said, that, like, because you had... So I... Prior to getting promoted, I had like a little bit of experience in a bunch of different fields, yeah. but not a lot in any of them. And you had a lot in CIU. Like I came, I was in major crimes when I got promoted. You were in homicide. You'd been in major crimes before that. So you had a lot more experience in that area than I did. I was in major crimes for like four months before I got promoted. Yep. I think I said to you, you know, the way you treat your people means as much, if not more, than your technical expertise that you bring to the job. Yeah, that was it. You're right. Yeah. Because if like if you don't have credibility with your people, it doesn't matter how much of an expert field you are in the in a field. Like, you know, you get people that have specialized unit experience, whether it's drugs or CIs or traffic or special ops or whatever. But like if you don't have credibility with your people by treating them well, it doesn't matter. You can't impart any expertise with them. Yeah. And I really took that to heart. I'm serious. I really did. Like just be nice to people. And I had a, a shift in mindset when I got promoted to sergeant. Mm -hmm. I was now a sergeant. It was as if somebody flipped a switch 
It was like, now you're a leader. Now you're this. And really in my head, I'm thinking, I'm just the same dude. Yeah. I'm just not the same, but you know what I mean? But, and we had talked about this recently where when I first got on the job and especially at MSP and with their rank structure there, they have a little bit more paramilitary environment, if you will. Mm-hmm. However, I saw sergeants, lieutenants, captains as these mythical creatures that they were just. Yep. And, and when I came here, you know, my sergeant, I just thought the world of him. You know, when I, the very first sergeant I had, and then I got promoted to sergeant and I started to realize very early on that I just put myself back into when I had one or two years on when my sergeant spoke or said things, it, it meant a lot. Like I really, it's like this dude has seen some stuff, but then. So can I interject a funny yeah, story? Yeah, please do. So, so my first sergeant, I don't know whether you want to share names or not. I won't share the name. People might be able to figure out who this is, but my first sergeant and I'm like maybe a week or two off FTO. And we're in this public housing complex. I'm talking to some lady whose son was a drug dealer and somebody broke in and stole of her hair equipment or whatever nonsense. And I'm standing there talking to her. My sergeant showed up for some reason. And it was real cold out. And for, for some reason, I still had the door standing open. And we're standing on like the second or third floor of this public housing complex. And the apartments are set up so that you've got like a stairway you go up that's outdoors and then the the front door of the apartment and we're standing just inside that front door talking to her. And then all of a sudden this like pit bull out of nowhere comes like barging in the door and is like growling and snarling at us. And it's kind of like doing that thing like dogs do where they kind of like rear and back, like they're going to, you know, attack. And my sergeant just stands there. doesn't really flinch. and just kind of stares at it and it just stops what it's doing. And it turns around and walks out the door and I'm like, what the heck is going on? Like you know, my sergeant just stared down this pit bull and it, and it ran away with its tail between its legs, like literally. And, and it's so like that first sergeant that I worked for, he was like one of those mythical creatures like that. Cause I'm like, I could never do that. Like mm-hmm. you just, I can't stare down a pit bull. Like yep. how, how, it's like literally fire bolts of lightning came out of his eyes at this pit bull and it yeah. knew to run away. Yeah. This first sergeant I had, he was just hilarious. He was great at motivating and making me want here's what he was very good at and i've had numerous i'm just talking about my first the first sergeant i ever had just because that's what's in my mind right now but he made me want to do a good job because mm-hmm. i just i didn't want to let him down you know what i mean that was a big yep. thing for me like i just wanted to do a good job because if i didn't i felt like i was letting him down and i'm telling you i had this shift when i became a sergeant also because then i started looking at other ranks and and kind of just being, it's like, oh, they must be experiencing the same thing. Like, they're just people. You know, granted, they have more experience and they've been through more situations and they can lend more expertise in certain areas. But, yeah, I say this a lot, but we're all just people. Yep. We're all just here. And just because I have three stripes on my arm, I'm just, I feel more responsibility. I think some people get promoted to sergeant and above and they kind of think the job is easier than like they don't have as much mm-hmm. they're kind of like oh other people do things now no i feel more more pressure now and responsibility than i've ever felt but i love it i really do the whole patrol sergeant thing is phenomenal it's great mm-hmm. because you get these six seven eight nine ten people and you really can have an impact on them yep because they're usually younger some are older though i mean you, you know you have well i guess that's the thing you have so many such a wide range you have the people who literally just are on FTO and they have people who have 15, 16 years on. Mm-hmm. And you just, it's a, 
it's a game of finding out what they want to do, put them in the right positions to do it, and just have them be successful. 100%. And that's one of the things I love about being a patrol sergeant is that, you know, a lot of the time, now you, you do have some of your, your older veterans and stuff, but particularly in the crew that I have, um, I got a lot, a lot of younger guys. Um, in fact, the the most senior person in the crew that I supervise is a classmate of mine. So right now I've got nobody who's more senior than me in my crew. That's that's how I'm the same way, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Several that have like some experience and some specialized senior unit experience and some that are like brand new. Um, and kind of like how, like I had, you know, just the, the fortunate opportunities to work under some very good supervisors and sergeants and lieutenants when I first came on, um, that, that took an interest in me and helped develop me as an officer. Like I'm trying to develop these guys and, you know, I've got several that have like different areas they're interested in and several of them that are, they've got areas of expertise that they know, they know more than me, but it's just a matter of like finding out what they're good at, you know, finding out what, what makes them tick and what they're passionate about and like setting them loose to go do it. Give them the tools to do those things that they want to do, the things that drive and motivate them and whatnot. Motivation. Yeah. I'm going to interrupt you rudely here. I think you and I talked about this self-determination theory. Yes. The talk about it. What self-determination theory is this a very basic theory, which articulates what do people need to feel motivated to perform? And I Mm -hmm. think this is one of, just a foundational thing that I think all uh, formal and informal leaders should really be aware of. There's three things. First one is autonomy, meaning the freedom to make your own decisions, right? People want to feel as though they're making their own decisions. Cool part of our leadership, you can manipulate people. Mm-hmm. And manipulation has an awful connotation, and it yes. sounds bad, but it's really not. I mean, man- leadership is manipulation in the sense of you want people to go do things so, you know, you can put them in the right position to do it. You can give them choices, all this kind of stuff. Really, you're manipulating them to go accomplish the task. Mm-hmm. So we have autonomy. Competency, which just refers to if you're going to ask somebody to do something, make sure that they can actually physically go do it. Don't ask somebody to do some crazy task that you, both you and them know that they'll never be able to do. So when people feel as though they have the right training, they have the right skill set, to go accomplish things, they're motivated to go do it. Right. And the last thing is a sense of relatedness. I, I don't. I'm not a fan of that word. Relatedness just refers to a sense of belonging. So, in the group that you have, in the group I have, building some sense of camaraderie, having them feel part of that group, a part of the department, all that. But you need all three of those things, right? So you just touched on it. People have to. You got to give them choices. And you got to set them free. Let them fly. Let them go. They're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. They're all peacocks. Just let them go. Yes. Very well said, Jeff. That might be the quote of the podcast. They're all peacocks. So if you give them the freedom to make their own decisions, don't micromanage them. Although, we can go into this, micromanaging is a tool. Some people need to be micromanaged. Mm-hmm. Not forever. It's like situational leadership theory. Yeah, absolutely. Look at us just throwing theories out there. Look at that. Uh, Next week, we'll talk about relativity. Autonomy. The ability to do whatever it is you're asking them to do. Mm -hmm. Competency, right? And relatedness. Building camaraderie. If you build all those three things, you will be successful. 
either formal or informal. Yeah. There's one thing that you kind of touched touched on in there where you're talking, and it's like one that I've tried to. It's like a concept I've really tried to gr- grasp and 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 utilize. It's not trying to like fit square pegs into round holes. You know, like like I've got I've got a couple of different people that work in my crew that are very motivated and intent on getting into different specialized units right now. And so like I've got we'll use two of them as an example. One guy A is really interested in getting into evidence detection unit. He takes all these trainings, he busts his butt, does all the the evidence processing and things we need to do on the street to give him experience to to build his resume for that position. And guy B really into doing DUIs. Like just, you know, he's got his reasons. He's very motivated at doing DUIs. He's very adept at doing them. And it's another example of two guys that know way more about these particular things that they're interested in than I've ever known and probably ever will as as a sergeant. But that being said, I'm not going to try to make guy B go out and handle DUIs. I mean, sorry, guy A go out and handle DUIs because it's, it's not what he's he's interested in doing. It's not where his competency is built up, um, unless unless the the operational situation that I'm that I'm dealt dictates that I have to ask him because guy B is not available for whatever reason. I'm not going to ask guy A to go handle a you know crash with a DUI arrest, and vice versa. I'm not going to ask guy B to go fingerprint a burglary scene and get DNA off a burglary scene and fingerprints and all that stuff because you know. That's not where his competency is built up. It's not what he's motivated to do. Like, put your round pegs in your round holes and put your square pegs in your square holes. Like, don't. Yeah, this job is stressful enough, right? Yeah. So why don't we do this? Why don't we put people in positions? There's so many different avenues you can go down in policing and law enforcement. And our department, we are fortunate enough to be large enough mm-hmm. because you have you do have smaller police departments out there and smaller organizations where they don't really have that freedom as much no. because they might only have two, three guys working a night kind of thing. So and they do have to you gotta do, a lot do of, everything. Lots of different things. So we're in a very unique situation where, mm-hmm. you know, I think I have nine people right now in the area that I work in. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, they can each kind of have their own little thing and they work well together at the end of the day they all need to know how to do the job and if you ask them to go do a DUI you ask them to go process the scene they're going to know how to do it however you can throw people a bone and be like hey I see you really like to do this mm-hmm. and you touched on it a little bit I had uh, an issue in the beginning because when I was on the road I was just very proactive I love stopping cars and going to every call for service and just boom 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 just non-stop not everybody's like that and that's okay, as long as they do something else really well, right? You can't just be a bum and not do anything. But if you're not that guy who's into stopping cars, cool. That's fine right. what you want to do. So I think that's a and, very important part. And and this kind of goes back to coming up under good leadership. And, like, I had, an, I had a, a situation when I was a young officer on the street where I had a sector partner who was trying really hard to get into EDU. Similar situation was taking all these extra trainings, wanted to handle all the processes on the street, things like that, to build their resume to, to get into EDU. And I hated processing things. Like I could never process a scene for fingerprints and not end up with dust all over myself and all over my uniform and have to go change my uniform. And it was it was a mess. Like I was I was not interested in it. I was not good at it. I hated it. 
And so when this person became a sector partner, I found out this person hated handling frauds. And I, for whatever reason, maybe it was because I had the education background in, in economics and some finance stuff, I didn't mind handling frauds at all. It was To me, it was just one big paper trail you got to follow. And so we, this other officer came to me and was like, hey, I'll make a deal with you. I'll handle all your processings. You handle all my frauds. I was like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we did that for a while. And it worked out great. And I remember thinking at one point, like, better not let the sergeant know about this arrangement because, you know, he's going to, you know, make me do all this stuff. And then at some point, like, the other officer, they told the sergeant about, sergeant about it. And they were like, okay. Yep. Great. And I was like, oh, oh, really? I, was, I did not expect that reaction. Yeah. And then looking back on it, I realized, like, that's that sergeant doing the same thing, like not trying to put, you know, the EDU officer into the fraud hole or the fraud officer into the EDU hole. And so that was an example of me seeing good leadership doing good things that helped develop me and helped keep me motivated. So, hey, now that I'm in a position to, you know, to be a leader to some of these people, I'm going to try to do the same things. I remember early on a lot of times if I would call my sergeant and ask him, hey, what do you think I should do in this situation? The rebuttal was always, what do you think you should do? And I remember the first few times that happened, I was like, this guy, he's asking me to do his job for him. Yeah. But now that he was doing the right thing because he wanted me to grow and learn and be confident in making my own decisions. Yeah. So that's what I do now. If somebody calls me, we work through it together. But I almost 99% of the time, unless it's an urgent situation, yeah. like, hey, what do you think you should do? Let's work through this. Like, let me let me into your brain over there. Like, what, how are you thinking about this? Now, in my mind, I already have two or three solutions ready to go. And if they hit one, cool, go do it. Yes. So now they think, oh, I just made my own decision. And they did. Yeah. I, I remember having so many conversations with my sergeants back when I was a young officer that went like that. And now when I get a phone call like that, like, hey, Sarge, what do you think about this? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what do you think you should do? And then they start to talk it out in my mind. And it's almost like you can see the light bulb go off in their head. And like I I can put myself back in that situation where they're learning a lesson that I remember learning as a younger officer. And when they learn that lesson because they figured it out for themselves, I'm like, good, great. You're going to remember it a lot better than me just telling you what to do. Yeah, the job of a police officer, you're a problem solver. Mm -hmm. That's all you are. Every day, you solve problems. And typically, your sergeant, not always the case, but your sergeant probably has more time on than you kind of thing. And they've just, they have a bigger Rolodex. They've experienced more things. So when you call your sergeant and you ask them a question, they have a Rolodex. They've been through it. Most likely, they've they've had this happen before. Right. So then just go back to it, the issue with younger officers is they just don't have that Rolodex yet. And they're going to work on it, and then they'll learn and grow from it. It's fascinating, mm-hmm. the things that you learn over time with this whole leadership and, and sergeant thing. And it's just it's been a really uh, fun experience for me. Let's transition into, you know, we kind of dipped into this with your resiliency training, and now this is my third episode doing the podcast. I think people realize by now, mm. I just jump around, just jump all around. So we're going to go back to resiliency a little bit and talk about fitness okay. because I don't think you can, 
I take this back. I think you can be resilient without being physically fit, but that's a much harder road to go down. Agreed. I think fitness has to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. So did you work out this morning? I did. Thank God you just said that. Yeah, like is water wet? Like, come on. I was going to ridicule you for yeah. five minutes. Thanks, Mr. Goggins. What'd you do? Um, so, uh, like went through my little warm-up routine that I've kind of, over the past two months, my warm-up has been exactly the same. How's the Rogue Echo Bike treating you? I love that thing. Yeah. Love my Rogue Echo Bike. It's great. I mean, I have the Assault Bike, which is the old-school version of that, but I use it every day. Yeah. Every I, single day. I do almost every day. It's, you know what? And it's funny you bring that up because my workout, my, my warm-up that I've kind of standardized over the past two months or so involves the Echo Bike every day. And for today, for whatever reason, I was like, you know what? Let me change it up. I'll get on the rower instead. And so like my warm-up was, is typically like, you know, maybe roll out, do a little bit of stretching first, but then I'll get 90 seconds on the Echo Bike and then do some leg swings, some dynamic stretching with the legs, same thing with the arms, some shoulder dislocators, and then I'll do some uh, like specific static stretching, you know, depending on what feels tight. And then I'll repeat. I'll do you remember that uh, shoulder workout I sent you? Yes. Have you been doing that? Yes. Because I do that every day. Yeah. For those listening. So there's a guy named Stu Smith. He former Navy SEAL. He's from Maryland. Mm-hmm. I got introduced to him because when I was in Maryland State Police Academy, he came and worked out with us a few times. Awesome guy. He puts on free workouts every day in Maryland basically for individuals who are looking to go in the special forces. He's got a couple books out there. He's awesome. He's just very unassuming looking guy. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of special forces guys are kind of like that, but awesome. Just always giving back. He, like I said, he's got a bunch of books out there, but I sent Jeff one of his dynamic shoulder warmups. Very, it's just a high repetition movement, lateral raises, overhead presses with very light dumbbells and it works wonders. Yeah. And, and the point of that is, to build your like stabilizer muscles in your shoulder. And so the reason why you sent that to me was, you know, for those listening back in the fall, I was working out and spent a week where I was like, you know what, I'm going to go really hard on shoulders. Cause I, you know, I just kind of was thinking, I was like, you know what, my shoulders are weak. Let me go really hard on shoulders for a week. And on like Thursday or Friday that week, I go to do a squat clean and my shoulder, my left shoulder is like screaming in pain. It's like, nope, I don't think so. We're done. So I was really worried that I had like done something serious to my shoulder. Like I had a conversation with you and like you and I have talked about this concept before and actually learned it from a CrossFit coach from a, a CrossFit box that I used to go to that unfortunately closed during COVID. But um, a lot of times when you've, you're working out and you've, you've get injuries in a joint and you, you get a pain in your shoulder, knee, hip, whatever, it's not necessarily something that happened in that joint that is wrong. It's a lot of times is, uh, you got some muscles that are out of balance. And so you introduced me to this, this workout from Stu Smith that like when I do it now, I write it on my whiteboard as Smith shoulders. Like I'm, I'm doing Smith shoulders today. Yep. And just the idea behind this, this workout is, you know, building up the stabilizer muscles in your shoulder. Cause you've got, you know, everyone knows you've got, you know, that's into working out knows you've got, you know, front, um, medial and rear deltoids, but you've also got all these little, little tiny stabilizer muscles in your shoulder that, don't get typically worked out in things like overhead presses or uh, military presses, you know, your typical shoulder movements, but you need to work these stabilizer muscles because if you don't, things can get out of balance and out of whack and cause you pain. Also, most people would just press all the time and they don't work on their rear delts, like their back and their rear, mm-hmm. rear delts. I, I was a victim of this for a long time, but 
you know, growing up, you're bench pressing, you're doing dips, you're doing overhead presses, you're always pressing. Right. You got to pull, you got to work that back because right. otherwise you look like a caveman. You're you all hunched over forward, all yep. the time. And, yeah. and then your chest gets tight. And then that pulls those shoulders in even more. And then you wonder why, you know, your neck's stiff and you got all these other issues going on. So what was the workout you did? So the workout was, um, and it's interesting that we're talking about this today because I, you know, I did this tweak to my shoulder back in the fall. You gave me this workout. I started working that back into my, the, the Smith shoulders, as I call it, you, working that into my routine probably about once a week or so is when I do it. But um, so today my workout was, well, it was designed to be 300 double unders, uh, 50 snatches at 95 pounds, and 50 toes to bar. So, but you can break it up any way you want. So I just decided, all right, I'm going to do it as five, five equal rounds. And be honest, I got to scale a couple things because I can do some double unders, but I have a real hard time stringing them together. And so for me to do 300 double unders, like that'll take me an hour just because I can do one or two or three. And then I trip on the rope because I got to start over. So when I, when I've got a workout that's got double unders in it, I'll just double the number and I'll do single unders. So I was going to break it into five equal rounds. So it was uh, 120 jump ropes, 10 toes bar, 10 snatches. And, uh, so thinking about the whole shoulder thing, like shoulder feels a little weird. I hadn't barbell snatched since, since I did this thing in my shoulder. I hate that movement. I know you and I have had that conversation before, but anyway, we can go down a rapid trail, but let's, let's not, not right now. But, um, you know, for me, I was kind of going to that thinking, all right, well, let's, let's test the shoulder a little bit and see how it, see how it feels. And so I do a couple of warm-ups with just like a bare barbell and I'm like, something ain't right. And I kind of transition back and forth and I'm like, all right, well, you know what? And then here's the other thing too, is I, I always work out first thing in the morning. And so I have to get up and get my butt moving because I have to get my workout in before it's time to get the kids up and get them ready to go to school and, or get myself out to work if I'm on day work. So I got a limited amount of time and something didn't quite feel right, but I'm like, you know what? I don't want to just ditch the workout altogether. If I can't snatch, I'll do clean and jerks. So I'll just go for it. So here I'll load up the barbell. And I, think, I thought, you know what? I'll give it one shot with, with the barbell loaded, see how it goes. And I just moved my hands a little bit wider. And I was like, oh, hey, dummy, your hands were too narrow. Put them a little bit wider. feels great. Hmm. So I loaded up the barbell and did my snatches at 95 pounds and felt great. Yeah. It feels great now. We'll see how it is tomorrow. Minor but adjustment. Minor adjustment. Now, what's interesting was the toes bar did not feel so good. Like I had to I had to modify that a little bit because just the strain that puts on your shoulder, the hollow hollow movement of going back and forth. And yeah, you know what I've had a lot of success with is just using rings instead of mm. like a static bar. Yeah. Because if your hand, if you're doing traditional pull ups and your hands are facing out, it does put your shoulders in a awkward position. I think it's great to do pull ups right. and chin ups and all that stuff, but I have a set of rings. Man, that that has just solved Love. any and all shoulder problems I've had because your shoulders can naturally rotate and they can do their thing. And if the, you know, if your left shoulder wants to rotate a little more than your right, it's all good and nothing is jammed in one right. position. So, but, but going back to your question about, and your statement about resilience and physical fitness and whatnot. So May of 2018, I got promoted. Never been super fit. Um, CrossFit was something I kind of looked at for a while and was like, Hey, I kind of want to do that. Um, might be cool to check out. So May of 2018, I get promoted. Father's Day 2018, my wife gives me like a gift certificate or whatever it was for like a free intro month 
the cross the gym in the town we live in. Man, that's a dicey gift. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You give somebody a gift to go work out. Yeah. And um, like six weeks later, she's like, I, I think I created a monster. Cause yeah. Because I, I was like, like two weeks into it, I was like, I love this. And I also discovered I was in way worse shape than I ever thought I was. So I worked out of that CrossFit gym, started, in, you know, for a couple of years, usually showing up to like classes early in the morning, 5, 530, stuff like that. Um, the head coach there was phenomenal. And I learned a lot from him, not just about like CrossFit and whatnot, but like learning that concept that we just discussed a couple minutes ago about how like, you know, if you've got a pain in your joint, it's not necessarily the joint that's the problem, but some muscles that are out of balance because something's too tight or, or muscles weak or something like that. So I learned that lesson from him. That was a big takeaway I, I got from him. So 2020 happens and the gym's got to kind of shut down and um, they, they were like offering programming for a while and kind of like flying under the radar, like, Hey, you can kind of come in and work out by yourself. And, and then eventually they, they kind of, they had to shut down because they got hit hard by the COVID or by the, by the business restrictions from the COVID. Uh, so then that kind of sent me into this thought of like, all right, what the heck am I going to do? Because I don't want to just sit around like a bump on a log. I, and I've really enjoyed CrossFit. You know what my answer would have been if you would have asked me? What, what would your answer have been? Burpees. Just do burpees. And every day. Burpees. Just do burpees every day. Mm. I would have hated that answer that, that answered like 10 months ago. There's now no greater like, movement. Now I'm like, I kind of... I can't believe I'm going to say this. I actually kind of like doing burpees. Did that just come out of my mouth? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I can say I like, I like doing burpees. Yeah. I like the results I get from doing burpees. Yes. I usually contemplate my existence and, and why I'm doing things when I'm doing the burpees. But I went through a phase where I was literally doing burpees every day. I would do probably close to 200 a day, that and kettlebell swings. Mm -hmm. That was my workout for a while. Hmm. And then I just kind of missed those heavy heavy lifting session stuff. like yeah. i i really enjoy it you know that uh not to divulge not to diverge from what you were talking right. about but go back to what you're saying so do you, so, you have a so home I, gym set up so i have a home gym set up so like i had i had some stuff that had been collecting dust ever since i started going to the crossfit like i already had a squat rack i had a you know olympic bar with steel set of weights and had a rower because my wife my wife was a rower in college so we got got her a rower a couple of years ago um and then, but most of it was like collecting dust in the basement. And the basement was a giant mess, and trying to work out down there was challenging the first couple of weeks after the gyms were closed. But then I, um, somebody sent me the idea of going to Tractor Supply and getting horse stall mats because they're basically the same thing as gym mats. And they're like, That was me, wasn't it? Might have been you. It was, yeah, it was, I told you, you, that. Were, you were JP. I think I told JP. You, about it. you probably told JP, and JP told me about it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anybody looking for. Uh, gym flooring. I mean, really, horse tractor stall, supply. Horse stall mats. Horse stall mats. Awesome. Yeah, they're great. You need to wash them before you bring inside because they smell really bad of rubber, but yeah. um, they're great. That's what I have. And they, they're they basically the same thing as gym mats, and they're like and they're like a third, maybe half the price. Yeah, they're definitely a third of the price. And I don't care how strong you think you are. You're not as strong as a horse. No. <laughs> thumping around on mats, which those are designed <laughs> for. So you can drop anything on them. And you know what's funny is like you say that, but like I, I work out in my basement and I'm still afraid to drop like really heavy weights on it. Dude, I have an eighty count pedal eighty count eighty, 80 pound count. kettlebell. I just sling that thing around. Just drop it right oh, around. Oh yeah, the all the time. Mats. Doesn't even make a dent. Um Yeah, so like I've you know, like when I'll like heavy deadlift, I still like bring out extra pads and put that under that and whatnot. But Well that's silly. Okay. You're not a Clydesdale. You don't have to do that. <laughs> it's true, I'm not a Clydesdale. Um 
but yeah, so I, I got some horse stall mats. I cleaned up the basement a bit and I've got this little section of the basement where that's like, that's, that's my spot, you know? Um, Do you have a name for it? You know what? I should have a name for it. Like I've started to decorate it with a few things. Like at first it was just this bare walls, um, nothing up there now, you know, cause I also still share the space a little bit with like the HVAC system and the hot water heater and the sump pump and this rack of, um, shelves that I've built. And it's weird cause, um, you know, being in the basement, there's a few things I can't do. Like I can't do wall balls. I can't, uh, unless I go outside to do the workout, I can't jump onto a 24 inch box cause I'll hit my head. So I have like an 18 inch box that I'll do box jumps on, but it's still, it's like, that's my space. And like, I'll work out five or six days a week down there. And I like to work out first thing in the morning because there's just something about working out first thing in the morning, getting that in, like getting those endorphins in, like if training is important to you, there's so many other things that can happen during the day that like, if you're trying to work out after work or whatever, that like things that can derail you. But like in terms of like relating that to resiliency, like that's the, like that's my centering and focusing time. It's not just the time to, to, train and to get fit. But, uh, it's the time that, you know, I go down there by myself. I have my thoughts with me and just kind of clear my head sometimes and throw some weight around or go and get on the echo bike and here's a way up a sweat. And sorry, here's uh, I, I always interrupt you. It's okay. We're used to it by now. It's yes, just our it's natural true. flow of conversation. Yeah. Here's what I think about fitness and resiliency. I think I think a lot of what we try to do, right, with all this resiliency talk and meditation and yoga is we're talking about lowering levels of stress, right? How can we curtail this stress? And I think some people get the wrong image and message in the sense of, you know, we don't want you to just be sitting in a corner all day and never have any stress happen to you. That's the opposite of what That you should be seeking discomfort you should be seeking challenging things because you don't grow without testing yourself and challenging yourself Mm -hmm. and going and doing crazy things every once in a while to work out those techniques so before we started recording i think is before we started recording we're talking about the box breathing and square breaths and all that kind of stuff oh you call it tactical breathing that's right a lot of names for it and you know yes you should be practicing that in the at the grocery store, you should be practicing it in your car. But the reason you're doing that is is so when you're in the shit, you're in a bad situation, that can come out. Mm-hmm. But you can also do that to yourself, right? You mm-hmm. can put yourself, and that's why I love fitness so much. You can put yourself in a hole in fitness. Go do a thousand box step ups wearing a 45 pound ruck, right? And just, just go do that. And you're going to contemplate your existence probably 300 reps in. And you're going to have to center yourself at some point and start using those strategies. Mm -hmm. But if you never actually put yourself in very uncomfortable situations, you never get a chance to truly test out those techniques. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's why I think fitness is one of the great mediums for, you know, stress and anxiety and working on those techniques. Because you get to do it. You get to actually... Mm -hmm. Go through a hard workout and use those techniques. And I'll, and I'll say this. So I was thinking about this as listening to your your other episodes before this. 
um, in, in, in terms of like box breeding and tactical breeding and stuff like that. So I'll never forget the first time I realized I should have done that on the street. So I, I got to introduce that concept from one of Dave Grossman's books. So if you're not familiar with Dave Grossman, he's, he's a colonel in the U.S. Army and was also a professor of psychology at West Point. And he put out a couple books uh, years ago now at this point. One of them was called On Killing and the other one's On Combat. And like talking about the psychology of teaching people to kill, teaching soldiers to kill, um, and the psychology of things that happen to you in combat and the stress of, of that and whatnot and how you're, when your adrenaline spikes and the flight or flight situations and things that happen like that. And so I read both of those books uh, right around the time I came out of the apartment. I think I read one in the academy and the other when I was on FTO. I remember being on FTO and it was uh, the first time I ever, I don't know if it was the first time I ever had to drive lights and sirens somewhere, but it was the first time I drove lights and sirens somewhere a good long distance. And I was in the car with my FTO, we were doing something, and then this call comes out for this guy's suicidal. He's in the side yard of a house and he's armed with a shotgun. And so, and it was, we drove, well, we drove from, we were at like two in Farron when this happened on the west side. And this was in like, I don't know, like off of Route 7 in Old Palmer Park somewhere. So like a good distance to drive and a good distance to be driving lights and sirens. I'm just nodding my head because I, I don't have you, no Because no you don't concept. even know where the west side is. I have I no know. concept of what you just said, but it, far distance. Okay, it was a far distance to be driving 69A or lights and sirens for those of you who don't know our 10 codes here locally. But And so it was the first time I'm, I'm driving this. And so like my adrenaline's up because it's the longest I've ever driven lights and sirens. It might have been the first time I drove it anyway, period. And it was also the first time I had in the back of my head going to something. I was like, hey, I'm going to have to shoot somebody when I get there. And so, like, my adrenaline was, like, way up. And it just so happened, like, we were, like, the fifth or sixth person there. And, you know, one of the first people there was one of the people who's also on the negotiators team. And so right as I'm pulling up, that guy decides to give up, and he goes into handcuffs. And so I'm getting there, and, like, my adrenaline's through the roof as I'm getting there. And then I show up as a rookie, and they're like, all right, what are we doing from here? So, cause you're handling it rookie. And I just completely crapped the bed with that investigation because my adrenaline was like way up high and it was time to bring it back down and do like some higher order thinking and some investigative work. And like, I remember when the sergeant showed up, it was the same sergeant that stared down the pit bull. Um, I just completely like told him some wrong information just cause you know, I, I, I thought I knew and I didn't it. anyway. And so like, you get back in the car, my FTO is like, what the heck just happened? Like, you know, I've been doing well, and then I crap my bed at that situation. And my FTO is like, what the heck just happened? And I'm like, you know what? My adrenaline was up really high, and I was didn't bring it back down, didn't bring my breathing back down. And, you know, I just read about this concept of tactical breathing, and I probably should have implemented it, and I didn't. And he's like, okay. Well, that's great. You at least recognize yeah, you at that. least recognize it. You know I what? didn't know any of that stuff in oh, the beginning. Right. And and but my point is kind of what we were just talking about though. Put into practice when you don't need it, so that when you do need it, it's second nature. And like I'll use that a lot now as a sergeant because like when you go to those hot scenes as a sergeant, like you need to be the one who's higher order thinking and, and like looking at the holes of what we're doing. And you know, all right, we've got all these different things going on we need this task over here done and I need to plug somebody into that and like, who's best for that. And like, who can I tear away from what they're doing and whatnot? Like I can't be the one who's like losing my mind because my adrenaline's through the roof. And so like now I've had opportunities to practice that thinking in situations where I didn't necessarily, sorry, practice that breathing 
in situations where I didn't necessarily need to use it. So that now when I need to use it, it's like, okay, it's time to go to that place where like four seconds in and hold for four, four seconds out, hold out for four. And it was just kind of keep, you know, Jim Bolo calls it the square breathing. But yeah, yeah, I think uh, it's funny that that's a concept that uh, Jocko, Jocko Willink always talks about where if you're in a leadership position, being able to don't get so engrossed into what's going on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes literally physically take a step back, look at what's going on because everybody else is just for lack of a better term, staring down the barrel or gun kind of thing. Just take a step back, see where resources need to be. You know, I did this in the beginning when I first got promoted. I just wanted to go to the scene, just go, like something comes in, just put the car and drive and go. Mm-hmm. Now, something hot comes in. How about I pull it up on the map? Where are we at? Do we need to set a perimeter up? Do we need a canine? What streets are around here? Who do I have going to this? Who has less lethal? Who has, you know, start doing all that stuff. Just take 30 seconds before, before I throw that car and drive. That's my metaphorical take a step back. Everybody's excited. You be the one who's just very cool, calm, and collected. I'm freaking out inside. But, you know, just work on your breathing. Just do your thing. And, you know, chances are if you've been a supervisor for a long time, you, you have a Rolodex of info to pull from anyway. Mm-hmm. And you've probably been through that situation before. But moral of the story, work on your breathing. Work on your stress and anxiety techniques. And, and do it when you don't have to. Do it when you don't have to. Like, practice it. Practice it when you don't need to. Yeah, I did it when you walked in today and I saw you had ripped jeans on. It's like, all right, stressing me out. I got to relax. No, I really did work on it this morning. I did a very short workout this morning. Nothing crazy. Run for three minutes or basically start running every three minutes, stop and do 20 air squats and 20 lunges per leg. So 40 lunges. And then keep running and just keep cycling through that until I get tired. You know, I didn't have a lot of time this morning. I was kind of rushing around a little bit, so I did that for like 30 minutes, I think it was. But, yeah, work on the breathing. And running is a great time to do that. Keep your heart rate under control. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. You and I scheduled this episode to talk about the book Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. So it hasn't come up yet. Hasn't even come up yet. I mean, let's talk about it a little bit at least. I'm very close to just buying 40 copies of it, I'm telling you, and just – because that's an investment into our future and just having that at the academy. And you and I have talked about this numerous times. The thing that that book does is it puts a label on things, mm-hmm. right? It talks about hypervigilance. I never heard that term before. It's it's just also known as uh, officer safety, basically, and just being yeah. aware of what's going on around you at all times. Because you, you do have to do that, you know, as a police officer. And then it goes into other things, how, I don't know, basically you just get stressed out about things. You have to recognize that stress and you have to think about ways, you know, your your central nervous system is just operating at a level much higher than it should be for 11 hours and 15 minutes. And exercise and breathing, and you need to think about ways to bring that down. And it's not just police, it's military and it's other first responders who are paramedics, but you really need to consciously think about it you can't just go through a first responder's career and just never think about this stuff. You shouldn't. I take that back. You could you do that. You could do it. And I think people, and some people do. So, all right. So you and I have talked before because you've done this in your, in your education, you know, working on your PhD right now. Yeah. 
um, the difference between stress and distress. Yes. So like you could go through your whole law enforcement career and all these, and never talk about these things, never kind of look at the bigger picture of what's going on and, and these things that Kevin Gamartin puts labels to and, and names to. But all those stressors, they're going to pile up and they're going to turn into a lot of distress. And that's where I think we get a lot of, uh, you know, yesterday during the training, uh, one of the other instructors, you know, share the statistic that, you know, the average lifespan for a police officer is 57. 57. That's not, that's, I mean, I don't know what it is for Americans in general, but it's, I got to think it's somewhere in the mid seventies. Um, I would love to, I would love to take a deep dive into that statistic as far as, you know, what's causing that. Yeah. What's causing that? Uh, can we, can we compare the numbers from 20 years ago to present day? Because, the amount of the, the just the discussions we're having, just the training that you gave yesterday, mm-hmm. right? Like, what kind of impact is that having? You know, I, that's very difficult to pull the numbers on that because that's a mm-hmm. longitudinal study where it takes a very long time to actually. You have to wait till somebody dies. You know what I mean for, for that study right. to take place. But yeah, fifty-seven. I mean, if that's the current number, that's that's terrible. That is terrible. I don't know what the national average lifespan and it's got to be mid 70s right that's what i think too for for americans probably mid 70s but um if you go through a law enforcement career and without thinking about these things thinking about how to deal with these stressors and let them piling up into distress like that's just gonna lead to all, all those things like the hypertension and the heart problems and you know the you know if you're if you're not making time for fitness like getting really out of shape like really out of shape and you know, that leads to diabetes and, you know, high cholesterol and all those other things that are just, they're going to kill you early. If, if, if the physical hazards that you face on the street don't kill you, the, the car wrecks and the, you know, officers getting shot or stabbed or whatnot, these other things are killing officers post-career because of all the, the physical toll that has been taken on your body through the, the physical stress, the mental stress and whatnot. And statistically speaking, that, right. that is exponentially the greater factor mm-hmm. you know yes do officers die on the job yes but do officers also die because of suicide and just poor health mm-hmm. the, the problem with that is it's very difficult to it's, it's get the di- data on that it's very difficult to identify the the proximate cause on that yeah you know like an officer is feloniously killed in the line of duty um it's very easy to see what exactly caused that you know an officer takes their own life or they dropped out of a heart attack two months after retiring it's a lot harder to pinpoint what exactly caused that um but i don't think it's it's it takes a rocket scientist to figure out hey this job has a lot of stresses stressors involved in it and if you let them all pile up and i also um, think this i think a lot of people so when we talk about this stuff this doesn't mean it's okay for you to throw yourself a little pity party and be like oh poor me i'm a first responder i'm a police officer i'm in the military cool story man you chose this path so you have, if you want to live a fulfilling life and you want to not piss off everybody around you and have great relationships, you're going to have to proactively go after this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry if nobody told you that, but if you're seven, eight, nine years in now and you're starting to have issues, you know, there's, there's books out there and ways you can educate yourself. Listen to this podcast or read Emotional Survivor for Law Enforcement, do both, but you can't just throw yourself a pity party and say, poor me. You have to take, like I talked about early on, you have to be an individual that's hardy. You have to take responsibility for the things that are happening in your life. 
Don't blame anybody else. It's nobody else's problem. It turns into other people's problems because if you let it get too out of control, right. you just become an a-hole. So, so one of the things that Gil Martin talks about in that book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, is he talks about taking ownership of things in your life, in particular like in your personal life and how that really helps you deal with the emotional roller coaster that the, um, being a first responder puts you on. And so like I'll, I'll kind of give a couple of examples of this. So I talked earlier about how I got into hunting a few years ago like 18, 19, 20. I don't remember what exactly it was, but I think I saw some show where guys were like spot and stalk hunting for mule deer or elk out West. And I was like, that looks awesome. I want to do that. Was it Steve Rinella? Rinella? It, I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think it was, we were talking about Steve Rinella, but like, I don't think he was popular back when, when I first got introduced to this, the, the whole concept of spot and stalk hunting, um, particularly out West for like mule deer or elk. Um, but I was like 18, 19. I saw that on TV and I was like, Oh, that looks awesome. Like, I want to go hike mountains, you know, sit up on the edge of a mountain and be like, and, you know, use my binoculars and, and, you know, look for an elk or look for a mule deal on a far ridge and then say like, okay, how do I sneak within range to be able to shoot that animal and, and harvest that animal and get meat from that animal and whatnot. And so a few years went by and, you know, I, I talked to somebody at one point and they were like, yeah, that's not really a rookie hunt. Like you don't just don't ever hunt and then you go out West and do that. Okay. So let me take up hunting around here. Let me take up hunting for whitetails around here on the East coast where we live. And so I started to get in that a little bit. And now I've been doing that since 2000, I want to say it was January, 2014. So it's been seven years since the first time I killed a deer. And some years it didn't progress as much as I wanted to, because I let things get in the way. And this year, like I talked about how that killing a deer with an arch with archery for the first time was like a goal mine, because that was like a sub goal of building the skills to get out West. And so like now I'm starting to make some plans of building some more of those sub goals to, you know, I'm, you know, what was at once a, this far off goal of mine and almost like a dream really is now become a goal that I'm looking at in the next two to three years. Yeah. I'm probably going to make my, my trip out West for the first time and, you know, get to hunt big game out West. So, but the point is like, I got to take ownership of those, those goals. I got to, you know, we were talking about a lot of different things here, but goals, sub goals, I got to take ownership of them too. And, and say like, look, you know, it's not just something that's going to come or happen by chance. Like I got to take ownership of it. I got to go out there and I got to do these things to get to where I want to be. Um, another example, and, and I think this is more applicable to everybody is personal finances. So like I talked about how I want to be on the wellness committee because of my background in economics and whatnot. Um, I'm very, I don't want to say super meticulous because I don't know where every single dollar goes. But, you know, I'm married. My wife has a full-time job too. We both get paid biweekly on the same day. So every other Friday, I sit at my computer and I got a spreadsheet and I put the amount that we get paid up at the top. What a nerd. And then I've got you know, 100%, 100% I'm a nerd with this. And then I've got all these different categories going on the left side of the spreadsheet for things that have to get paid, like mortgage, money that we put automatically into short-term savings, money we put automatically into IRA. Um, money that we give away to charitable causes that are important to us. Um, utilities, you know, get several, you know, a line for each one of those and whatnot. So that um, I know where the majority of my money is going. Cause I have, cause then, so then I, you know, I, I got the top column where the, the total amount we got paid goes. And then each one of those, when I got to um, pay them, I'll put the amount in, you know, you know, I've got the formula set up so it'll subtract out and it give me the, the amount left over at the bottom. And, and I've got kind of like the, 
not an exact number figure because it because the the money you need for gas and groceries and clothing and you know you might want to spend on eating out or whatnot that can change variably from week to week and whatnot and you know like now I've got three kids and you know maybe one week one of them's got a birthday party they got to go to so that's extra money I got to spend on that but I've got like a a target kind of gold number that I know every two weeks we need X number of dollars to spend on those things like gas groceries you know eating out things like that and any other expenses that come up that are just, you know, minor incidental expenses. But I track all those other things, the the IRA contributions, the charitable giving, the money we put into short-term savings, the money we put into kids' college savings, the mortgage payment, um, money we put in car fund, because um, I'm a big Dave Ramsey fan when it comes to uh, personal finances, and then I hate debt. But my point is, like, and I could talk about finances. We could have a whole, a whole episode on finances, but my, my point is, like, I'd very much take ownership of that and I'd take control over it. And where I don't know where every single dollar goes, because once I get to that bottom number, you know, I don't track exactly how much we're spending on gas every week or how, exactly how much we spend on groceries every week, because that'll change here and there. But everything else, it's like, yeah, I know where the vast majority of my money went, like every single dollar. Like, you know, it's like probably about 75 to 80% before I get down to that number that we need for gas and groceries. I know where all those dollars go. And I know how much, you know, balances are on car payments or mortgages and things like that. So I take ownership of those and I'll have financial goals that my wife and I set for ourselves and our family. And um, Gil Martin talks about how, like, you know, just taking ownership of the things in your life instead of coming home and just flopping on the couch and surfing on TV and, you know, just kind of, you know, floating through life outside of the job is really good for you. Like just, you know, he... I can't remember the term he uses, but he, he talks about how like every law enforcement family knows the like the law magic chair. Yeah, the magic chair. You know, you come down and it's like it's magic because you just kind of zone out. And like to me, I've, I'm almost at the point now where like I try to not sit down at home. You know, like because I'll zone out or I'll fall right. asleep or something. Like I try to always be doing. Something, you know, unless we're sitting down at dinner as a family, but like sitting down in the comfortable chair, for the most part, try not to do it because of that very reason. Yeah. Because I want to, I don't want to just zone out and float through the personal life, take ownership of things, take ownership of your finances, take ownership of the decisions you're making about trips and plans and things and whatnot. Yeah. There's some science behind that, right? They talked about with the magic chair where a lot of police officers come home from work and they're just kind of grumpy and they sit in their chair and they just want to zone out. Well, that's because. As I said before, the job of a police officer is really just being a, par- a problem solver. So you're making decisions all day. All time. You come home and your wife asks you or your husband, hey, what do you want for dinner? And yeah, you're whatever. like, I literally could not care less yeah, because whatever. I just don't want to make a decision. It doesn't mean that's right, but that's that's kind of where that magic chair comes in. And I wrote something down when you were talking about your finances. Because you're that disciplined mm-hmm. with your finances, that gives you financial freedom. Yeah. Hundred percent. And who says Dis- that? Discipline equals freedom. Yeah, I'm bringing Jocko back. Jocko, I know, but that's yeah. what he says. Discipline yeah. equals freedom because if you are disciplined and you have control of your finances and you have control of your personal time and you have control of your fitness, that gives you freedom. Counterintuitive, right? Because people think discipline, they think restrictions, and I can't do what I want to do. No, if you take responsibility for your actions, that gives you the freedom yep. to go do whatever you want. So because you, Jeff McGuire, have financial discipline 
you want to go on vacation, you know exactly how much money you need. Mm-hmm. You know exactly what it's going to take, and you'll get it done. Yep. And and you know, uh, like I've mentioned, I'm a big Dave Ramsey fan, and I don't 100 percent agree with him on everything, but he says something similar too. He he, he talks about in his uh, radio shows, uh, uh, live like others won't now, so that later you can live like they can't. You know, he's he's very much like a. He's got his southern draw. If you've ever listened to him, he'll 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 tell people like when they're just getting started on their financial journey with you know him and his education, what he does. He's like, hey, you got to get on it. You got to get on a diet. You got to get on the rice and beans, beans and rice diet. You know, like, hey man, like, cut the crap out of your budget. You know, all the fat, everything in your budget, get it out. You know, we're gonna get on track. And, yeah, my and wife and I are literally doing the same thing now. Where we're close, right? Like, we're just trying to tackle some student mm-hmm. loans we have out there right now, but. You know, her and I consciously came consciously came to that decision where we're like, hey, let's just crush this for the next year, mm-hmm. right? Not going. Hey, I'll tell you what, COVID really helped out with this entire thing, like not going out to eat and not going to the movies and doing that kind of stuff. So a little bit of sacrifice, so that for the next however long, then you can really start. You got freedom. You know, you you have the freedom. And 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 Ramsey, like for those who are unaware, he's very anti debt. And so, like, there's a couple of his his further advanced points that I don't necessarily agree with him on, but he's very anti-debt and says, like, just, yo, credit cards, like, cut them up and just start paying them off. Like, don't need them. Um, he, he would tell you, like, never, ever, ever take out a loan to buy a car. And not to say that I have not taken out a loan to buy a car. I, I did in the last year, and like I said, we, we could do a whole other podcast on finances, but um, – Anti-debt. I'm super anti-debt. Yeah, you turned me on to that, actually. Yes. Uh, you really did. Probably 18 months ago, right. We, you and I started talking about this and using the snowball effect and just mm-hmm. picking off that low-hanging fruit. Hey, you yep. got $150 on that credit card? Crush it. Yep. You got 5000 left on your car? Crush it. And then whatever money you were putting towards the car and that credit card will now start yep. you know, making more payments on your mortgage and, and doing that stuff. So that that is effective, and- but... Good. And that's and that's a that's a long term strategy too. Like there's stuff you gotta do in the short term, but I mean somebody introduced that to me like shoot, probably eight years ago. And like I look at where I was financially eight years ago, just you know, in terms of uh my overall personal financial health, and I think like, you know, you look at like your net worth. Like people who are unless they're high net worth, they usually don't think about their net worth. But if I took stock of my net worth like eight years ago, I think I had a negative net worth. And like now it's, it's very much the opposite, right? you know, because it, you know, got on that, that train and that track and being very disciplined and, you know, very fortunate that I'm much better off now than I was then. Jeff, we talked about a lot of topics today. We had this podcast to talk about that book talked and we talked about, about that book for like, for like three minutes, <laughs> four minutes tops. But let, let me ask you this. When people listen to this, what do you want them to take away from this episode? Oh man, that's a good question. Especially considering all the different things we talked about. Um You know what? We we started by talking out about resilience and we talked about some other things and we kind of circle back to resilience. Like I want people to take away the idea that resilience or hardiness is something that that can be taught and learned and developed. And if you do put in the work, it'll take some work. Um, it'll probably take some putting yourself into some situations that are uncomfortable, like writing a letter to the person who's been most impactful to you. Uh, but 
if you're willing to put in that work and willing to put yourself in some of those uncomfortable situations to build some resilience, then you're going to be better for it. And your family's going to be better for it. Your loved ones, those around you, everybody around you is going to be better for it. Well said. I like it. I feel obligated to do this right now because I, I labeled you with three things in the beginning. Oh, we just, we hit on most of them, but mm-hmm. I, I don't want to leave you hanging here with, okay. we you you nailed police sergeant. We touched on you being a librarian. It's because you started a, a, a great leadership um, library, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, back at Newcastle County Police Headquarters for everybody, and that's going well. You're also a pen maker. Yeah, sort of. I guess. What is your... So, all right. So, we'll, I won't bore people with this too much, but... Uh, Please don't. My grandfather on my mom's side passed away before I was born. He was really into woodworking, like building furniture, making picture frames from scratch, things like that. When he passed away, they just kind of left his wood shop, as is in my grandmother's basement. So, I started playing around there as a kid, not knowing any... had no clue what the heck I was doing. It's actually kind of impressive. I didn't cut my fingers off. But um, around 18, 19, I started to get more interested in it, getting a little bit more serious into it. And then um, probably four or five years or so ago, I discovered, hey, YouTube and Instagram are great places to learn about skills that you don't have. Because up until that point, I've been trying to learn it through books. So I discovered, you know, you can learn anything through YouTube. And so I started picking up woodworking more. And I inherited his lathe, which is a tool that you use to um, make basically anything that's round. So, like, if you have the right size lathe, you can make pens. You can make um, handles for tools. You can make baseball bats. You can make spindles on a staircase. So I inherited his lathe. And just kind of, like, as one of the first projects I, you know, I picked up to start doing things, I started making pens because it was a simple little project that I could do in an hour. So I started making a few of them using them here and there. And then the first year that I had them, I gave them all as gifts to the people that worked for me and my crew. And then that just kind of snowballed into some people asking me to, you know, make them for them and people paying me to make them for them. And then uh, I did a whole bunch this year um, for somebody at work who asked me to, to do all their, their, their Christmas gifts for them. And then funny story, because like you and I have talked like several times and you carry around this little journal that looks like very elegant. It's like this leather bound journal and whatnot. And you carry around a Bic click pen. Yeah. They're the best pens ever. No, they're terrible. They're awesome. I love how they write. Yeah. Don't tell me what kind of pen to carry. (laughs) They're awful. So funny story was, so I made all these pens for somebody at work for their presents for their people. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to make them for my people too. And... I use the same design and I just, you know, you make the, you get, you buy these parts, the, the hardware parts of a pen as a kit, and then you take a piece of wood and you, you shape it and sand it and you put a finish on it to, um, make it be the body of the pen, the part you're going to grip and hold. And it looks nice. It feels nice whatnot. Well, I did all the ones that I was going to do for my people in a different wood. And then I start to finish them like five days before Christmas. And for whatever reason, still haven't fully figured it out to fix the problem yet. Uh, the finish was just not turning out. Like it looked awful. And I'm like, oh crap, it's five days before Christmas. And this is what I had to give my people. And it looks awful and I can't give them to them. So I scrambled to find another Christmas present to give my people. Yeah, you stole my idea. Yeah, I did. I 100% stole your idea. Yeah. Because I was kind of panicking a little bit. 
Um, I didn't know what I could get in time. So I stole your idea. And I've still got all these pens sitting at home to do for my people that work in my crew. And I was also going to do them for all the supervisors that I work with. So like I had one for you. And actually I had engraved on them people's initials and IBMs. And they're still sitting on my desk because – on my workbench at home because I've, I've got like – got through half of them and the finishes all look terrible. And I'm like, well, I don't want to put finish on the rest of these and screw them up. So let me figure out this finishing problem first. Anyway, long story. I make pens as a hobby. My wife calls herself the pen maker's wife right now, like, you know, elbowing me in the ribs every time she says that. But uh, it's uh, going tying that back to resiliency. It's like a hobby that I have that has nothing to do with police work that I can go out in my garage and, you know, just decide one night, hey, I want to go make a pen, be alone with my thoughts. I go out to the garage an hour, half hour later, I have a pen made. And it's like one of those things that I can kind of disconnect from police work with. And, you know, we've been talking a while now and I don't want to open up a whole nother topic to, to dive into, but like I also think like in terms of resilience, it's important to have some kind of hobby or something you do that has nothing to do with police work. And I think like in your episode with John Yard, like you guys talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Like he, he draws up plays coach, like yeah, for coaching. Coaches, and yeah. Stuff. He coaches football. Yep. Um, and so like some of the things that I have that I do, like, you know, hunting is one of them. Woodworking is one of them. Um, it's just something that I can use that I can disconnect and disconnect from police work and not have to think about police work at all. And, you know, have a life outside of the job. And I think that's really important for people is to, have a life outside of your first responder work, whether it's police, EMS, fire, have a life, have something you do outside of that, that world that has nothing to do with it. Yeah. That's, that's very difficult for a lot of younger officers to do, but back to the pens real quick. They're so nice. They really are. I'm not, I remember the first couple of times. Well, you carried around. I've seen you carry around. I got them in my uniform. They are really, really nice. I'm not just saying that because you're here. I mean, if you give me one, I'll never carry it, but. Okay. Well, uh, (laughs) I'm, I'm going to continue to make fun of your big pens and your really nice leather bound journal with your big pen because it just looks like a, it's such a weird paradox to me. It is. Is there a name for this? Do you have a name for your pen making? I do sort of, I call it, I call it 1904 woodwork because my grandfather who I mentioned that passed away before I was born, he lived at 1904 Elm street. So I just kind of threw that in there as like a cool shout out. I'll put that on the, on the show description and the, because I know you have an Instagram page with that, 1904 Woodwork. All right, cool. Jeff, I think that's it. Anything else you want to add? You suck. (laughs) Yeah. That's great, Jeff. Way to really take advantage of an opportunity. All right, man, thank you. And as always, everyone, if you learn something, share something.